Welcome to the Podglomerate. Status is supported by CastBox, which I didn't know is the only podcast app to receive Google Play's Apps of Excellence Award. CastBox recently launched in audio search, so you can find new podcasts by searching words or topics from within episodes that you might like. That's crazy. CastBox is available on iOS and Android, so go download it and try it out. Welcome to Season 2. This is Status, the show about how immigration impacts people. My name is Matt Horton, and I've been working on this season for a long time now. Also, check out that new show art. It looks great, doesn't it? Shout out to the Podglomerate for their help in creating that new art, and just for their support in making this season come together. They've been really incredible to me and the other creators that are a part of the Podglomerate. So let's get to what you're here for. To start out the season, I'm going to be talking to recipients of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. What's DACA? Well, let's dig into that. I want to do something I don't usually do here on Status, and get into the weeds a little bit about what we're going to be talking about over the next few episodes. I think it's important that we all know what it is we're talking about. In August of 2001, Senators Dick Durbin of Illinois and Orrin Hatch of Utah introduced the Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act, the DREAM Act. The DREAM Act was based on an earlier bill from April of that year, but the basics were the same. Both bills were an attempt to recognize that not all people who illegally enter or remain in the United States do so of their own accord. To say it more plainly, the children of undocumented immigrants who would come to be known as DREAMers should not be punished for the actions of their parents. Different versions of the DREAM Act have been introduced to both chambers of Congress over the years. There were attempts to attach the text of the bill to immigration reform bills in 2006 and 2007. Senator Durbin attempted to attach it by amendment to the 2008 Department of Defense Authorization Bill. But the most prominent instances of the DREAM Act's history were its original 2001 incarnation, the 2009, 2010, and 2011 bills, and the 2017 bill. Each of these bills lays out criteria that a person has to meet to qualify to obtain what's called conditional resident status. With a conditional status, a beneficiary can work and live in the United States without fear of deportation, as well as work toward permanent resident status. The bills also each lay out criteria a person must fulfill to move from conditional resident status to permanent resident status. In broad strokes, the criteria for conditional resident status are typically that the person must have entered the U.S. either before the age of 16 or 18, depending on the iteration of the bill, that they have proof of residence in the United States for anywhere from four to five consecutive years since the date of their arrival, that they graduated from a U.S. high school or obtained a GED, and that they are of good moral character. Some versions of the bill require men to register with a selective service, and others require beneficiaries to be of a certain age when applying. Another thing that all of these bills have in common is that so far, none of them have passed. I'm recording this in December 2017, and so far, we've yet to see the 2017 bill make it to the floor. 
but all of the previous iterations have either died before seeing a vote or simply been defeated. There was a string of rather demoralizing defeats for the bill's supporters at the beginning of President Obama's administration. He and the rest of the bill's supporters continued to push it forward in 2009, 2010, and 2011. After the failure in 2011, it would seem that the Obama administration abandoned passing the DREAM Act as legislation. In its stead, President Obama announced on June 15, 2012, that his administration would stop deporting DREAMers. Two months later, USCIS, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, began accepting applications through the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which you probably know better as DACA. DACA provided protection from deportation and a work permit for qualified immigrants. Work permits were provided for two years, and a renewal process was made available. Of course, the Trump administration ended DACA as we knew it on September 5th, 2017, but added what it called a six-month delay. Anyone whose work permits expired on or before March 5th, 2018 could put a renewal application in. However, the last renewal application was accepted on October 5th, 2017. With some wiggle room due to a postal service error that meant 4,000 applications were stuck in mail limbo for two weeks and arrived late. On March 6th, 2018, all DACA recipients whose work permits have expired will become eligible for deportation. On January 10th, 2018, a federal judge ordered the Trump administration to start accepting renewal applications again. That means that 11,000 DACA recipients whose permits have expired since September can apply for renewal. However, the Trump administration's only guidance for when the mechanism for receiving renewal applications should be implemented was in a reasonable amount of time. DACA's become a hot topic since we started 2018. It's the thing keeping Congress from passing a regular budget bill. The government shut down, and it came back, and Dreamers' lives are still a bargaining chip. These are people who have grown up in the United States. For many of them, the United States is the only country that they've known as home. Deportation would send many dreamers back to countries they've never known. Not only that, but now that we live in a world where DACA has existed, many of these people started building their future here in the United States. Those futures, and the futures of all dreamers, are now more in question than they've been in over five years. So for the next three episodes, I'm talking to recipients of DACA. These are young people who, for one reason or another, found themselves needing the protection DACA provided. Let's meet the first one. Well, hi. My name is Sandra, uh, Sandra Hernandez. I am currently 25 years old, um, and I am from Austin, Texas. I met Sandra via a fellow podcaster in a Facebook group we're a part of. I asked Sandra how her name was pronounced, and she said it could go a variety of ways. So we're going to go with Sandra for now. When I was 15 years old, I started seeing flyers around the school for um, that public school system program that allows you to get your driver's permit through school. I went back home to my mom, and I was like, hey, so I'm 15, and I think that I should be getting my driver's permit. And I have this like flyer here that tells you all of the paperwork that you need. Um, and they asked for her social security number, and I don't know what mine is. Do you have it? And she was like, oh, yeah. You know, she, like, brushed it off, and she was like, yeah, let me, like, look and see what I can find. 
Um, it's probably like in a folder that we haven't, that we have like filed away. Didn't think too much of it. And then my dad got home and that's when they had the talk with me. And I, in the dreamer community, I feel like it's a very common thing to have the talk because we get two talks in our lifetime. And I knew, like, I knew growing up that I was born in Mexico. That was never lost on me. They always reminded me, hey, you're born in Mexico. Here's your birth certificate. Look, here's your passport. Totally fine. I just never assumed in my head that coming here was done not through the legal route. While her parents' path to the United States may not have been strictly by the book, it was a path born out of a desire for a better life. And actually, they never really planned to stay here. My parents um, are both from Mexico. So my dad um, grew up very, very poor. And his dad was like an alcoholic and he didn't have the best upbringing. And then my mom on the other side comes from um, a family of engineers. So her father was an engineer my uncles are all engineers. And so I don't think that she was ever really for want of anything. Yeah, they got married when I think they were very young. Um, so my mom was 19 when she got married. And they waited a couple of years and then they had me. Um, and I think that that's where they really started struggling um, to make ends meet. Sandra's aunt had moved to the U.S. with her husband, and she would tell Sandra's parents about all of the jobs available there. And she was already here, and she was telling my parents, hey, you know, there's a ton of jobs here for you. Like, you can just come work here for a little bit, um, make the money that you need, and then you can all, you know, go back and um, start your life again in Mexico and start fresh. So... My parents kind of struggled with that idea. I talked to them, obviously, afterwards about it. And they were like, you know what? That's fine. Um, let's go to the U.S. Let's just work for a couple months. Um, and then we can come back and sort all of this out. So they came here on a tourist visa. Um, and I was three years old at the time. So I don't actually remember that trip at all. They did find jobs here. So my mom was a housekeeper just like my aunt. And then my dad went into the construction business, like, you know, most do. In the span that they were here on a tourist visa, I turned four years old. And at that point, um, my mother couldn't afford paying a nanny to take care of me. So what ended up happening was she put me in school. So I started school here, uh, pre-K. And that's, I think that's kind of where my memories begin. And, you know, life happened and it was a lot of, well, we'll go back next year. And the next year I was five and we'll go back next year and we'll go back next year. And then until we decided to stay because they didn't want to kind of tear me away from all that I had known. But Sandra didn't grow up knowing this story. So when her parents broke the news to her at 15 that she was undocumented, it came as a shock. I remember being very frustrated at first with them um, and very upset because it was like this, this lie that they had just omitted to me. 
I asked them, I was like, okay, so then how am I supposed to get a driver's license? Their answer? You don't get one. And so I remember being super upset. And my next question was, so like, how am I supposed to get a job? And they said, well, I mean, there's always ways to get a job here. It just might not be the job that you wanted. And I was like, all right, so what does that mean for college? And they were like, well, you can't go to college here. So I was like, so you're telling me that two years from now, I won't be able to go to college, which is everything that I have worked for. And they were like, well, we don't really know what your options are, and we don't really know what this means in terms of college, but I think it's worthwhile to ask around, ask your teachers, um, and see what, what you can do. At this point, Sandra says that she started to become more of an independent person. She started to figure out a lot of things about life on her own, because her parents couldn't help her. She says she felt disappointed. Because I remember seeing all of these parents come to, like, college prep nights and, um, like, parents asking around for their children for, like, hey, did you finish this recommendation? Or, hey, what should we put on this application? And, you know, it was always just, like, a family thing. And I remember feeling kind of left out because I was doing all of that on my own. Sandra wasn't totally on her own, though. AVID was like a college prep course that you took as an elective in school. What I didn't realize at the time it was that it was really for, like, underrepresented populations of the school. So I was like, so why aren't, like, my white friends in this class? Like, I don't understand why they wouldn't want this. This is a great class. They teach you how to, like note take and they teach you like organization schools and how to keep up with things and and it wasn't until later that I realized well they don't actually need this because their parents have gone through this so I went to my avid teacher and I said hey listen I just found out this about myself um what are my options what can I do is there anything that you know I can I can do at all um and I will never forget coach Natardi Um, She was an incredible teacher. Um, She was our swim coach, and she was also our our college prep advisor. Um, I went to her and I said, hey, so here's this about myself. I don't know if you've, like, dealt with this before. I'm wondering what my options are. And she had a wealth of information and knowledge about this. And she was like, actually, there are a couple of other students that are in the same position as you, um, let's take a look at your situation and see what can, what can happen. In the state of Texas, there is um, a law that states that if you went to um, school in the Texas public school system and you graduated from high school in Texas, you were allowed to qualify for in-state tuition. When I was applying to college, I had to apply as an international student because I was a Mexican citizen. So it was basically like I was applying as if I were living in Mexico, but wanted to go to school here. Basically on paper, that's what it looked like. So I was both applying to colleges in Texas as an international student, but because of that law, I could pay in-state tuition, even applying as an international student sounds, I mean, it sounds like a really interesting loophole. Yeah, it's so, it's a super interesting loophole. And as soon as she told me, like, I remember 
just like the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders because I was like, okay, great. So you're telling me that I can apply for Texas universities. And she was like, absolutely. She was like, if you apply elsewhere, you can also do that, but you have to pay out of state tuition. So what my parents and I decided was, okay, let's say that you apply to college in Texas, you get accepted in Texas, and we're paying in-state tuition. They're like, that's great, but you still don't qualify for loans, so how are we going to pay this? And um, I mean, at this point in my parents' lives, we were all living paycheck to paycheck, right? So any money they made, like there were no savings in my family ever. It's just not, quote, a luxury that we were able to afford. I wasn't working. Um, I would babysit every now and then, right? But it wasn't like I had a steady income or anything or savings that I could reach into to help me pay for college. And that's when um, Coach Natardi and I really started to get into the weeds of how I was going to pay for college. Um, And it turns out that I was able to apply for state um, scholarships and private scholarships. So any kind of like offhand scholarship, like, um, first generation college student, or, you know, those like, really there's a scholarship for anything out there. Um, I was just applying like crazy to them. I was applying as long as it was a private scholarship. So, you know, just like a, a separate organization or, um, a Texas A&M scholarship, right? Because I also qualified for those. Sandra says that year went by in a blur of scholarship applications. It was so much work that I hadn't done before. Um, it was a lot of writing. It was a lot of editing. It was a lot of interviews. Um, and I remember just thinking, God, I hope it's worth it. Um, and I remember even like my high school counselor one time, um, it was for a scholarship. I was supposed to make an appearance at this luncheon to receive the scholarship. And it was in the middle of the day and my mom couldn't get off of work. Um, neither could my dad and I didn't have a car. I didn't know how to drive. My parents didn't teach me how to drive until it was absolutely necessary. So when I was 18, um, And I remember just thinking, well, you know, there goes that money. And my high school counselor called me in her office and she was like, hey, like, when are you headed out? And I was like, oh, I'm like, not like, I don't, I don't have a ride there. And like, I don't have a car. I don't know how to drive. So, um, but thank you for checking in on me. And she was like, what do you mean you're not going? And I was like, well, I just like, I don't like, I don't have a way to get there. So like, it's fine. And she goes, no, we're absolutely going and we're going right now. So she drove me to the scholarship luncheon. And we sat through like an hour of, you know, a mission statement of this organization and like networking with all of these people. And I mean, at the end of it, they like mailed me a check for a scholarship amount. And I remember thinking even just that act of kindness is what encourages people to do something, right? So like I, I would have just like not gone and just lost out on that opportunity had it not been for someone checking in on me and saying, hey, um, I know that maybe your parents might not be able to make it. Is there something that I can do to help you? Texas A&M 
was able to grant me the Regents Scholarship, which is for first-generation college students. What that scholarship looks like is they pay for your tuition for all four years. Wow. Yeah, as long as you maintain a certain GPA and obviously, you know, follow um, Texas A&M guidelines. So I remember as soon as I got that email that I had received that scholarship, I was over the moon. I was so excited. I told my parents about it. Sandra's parents were excited, but the Regent Scholarship didn't cover room and board. She thinks it might have covered a couple books a semester maybe, but not much past tuition. She'd need to hope that some of those outside scholarships she'd applied for came through. And it was incredible because I remember applying for all of these things and not hearing back for a while and then just getting all of these letters of congratulations you've received the scholarship congratulations you've received the scholarship and I remember tallying in a little notebook that I had um, how much each scholarship was for every criteria that I had to meet for it and continue to meet for it in college and adding that up and seeing the number and going back to like um, the te- like the calculator for how much a year at like Texas A&M was, and I remember they gave me a refund and I was at a surplus, and I was like, this could happen. I was like, I can do this every year. Um, so I remember my parents being like, I mean, all right. They were like, you you did it. You got into college. You got scholarships. You got enough to, you know, fund your tuition and your expenses. They were like, that's it. You're set. So I went to Texas A&M. I thought that I wouldn't like it, and I ended up loving it more than I ever thought I could. What podcast app do you use? There's a lot of them, and everyone's got their favorite. But only CastBox was named one of Google's apps of excellence. You can download it on the App Store or Google Play. And if you've got Google Home or an Amazon Echo, you can use CastBox there too. Go on and check it out today. So Sandra was at Texas A&M. It wasn't her first choice of school, but after receiving a scholarship that covered all of her tuition, she went anyway and threw herself into the college experience. She made great friends, got really involved, and found a home on her campus. Freshman and sophomore year, really. Freshman year of college, I was kind of on a high, right? Because I was like, wow, I made it. I'm learning so much. Like, I, this is exactly what I thought it would be. And then sophomore year, that kind of faded. And I started thinking, great. You made it to college. That was so tough to do in general, but also just especially in your situation. I was like, what happens after this? And that's when I was like, okay, so I get an education from this wonderful school. I get a degree. And then what do I do? I, I go back to Mexico. I go elsewhere because I can't work here. I was like, that seems patently unfair. And I remember feeling so sorry for myself 
And I remember thinking, it can't be that I've worked this hard just to be told, hey, good job. Here's a degree, you know, now move elsewhere because you can't work here. Sandra was in college during at least two of the recent attempts to pass the DREAM Act. It turned out to be difficult for us to nail down which of those attempts Sandra remembers, but it's likely the 2010 or 2011 bill. I remember everyone was getting very excited about the DREAM Act, and my mom was getting super excited. She would call me, you know, a lot and be like, hey, have you heard, like, there's this new DREAM Act, like, I think that maybe if it passes, like, you'll be able to graduate and, and have a job here and, and stay here, and I was like, yeah, mom, that sounds really cool. And I, I just, like, I never got my hopes up about it. Just, I, maybe I was a pessimist. I don't really know. Um, I was just like, yeah, maybe. Because in my head, I was just thinking of contingency plans, right? Like, okay, what do I do when this doesn't go through? You can look at it as pessimism or realism, but either way, Sandra was right. The Dream Act did not pass in 2010 or 2011. And I think... I was more upset than I thought I would be. Because in my head, it was it was never going to pass, which is such a pessimistic way of thinking about it. But I just remember the, the political climate back then and um, everyone's thoughts on immigration and also being at Texas A&M, which is a more conservative uh, school. I never truly thought that it was going to be that easy. Um, And I never knew that I wanted it to be so easy until I heard that it was struck down. Um, And I remember my mom called me that day. She was crying. Um, And she just... I feel like she felt more helpless than I did. Um... And I didn't understand it then because I was like, Mom, I was like, you're not in this situation. I'm in this situation, right? Like, we'll figure it out. It's fine. Um, But now thinking back on it, I think that mostly what my parents feel might be just like guilt for coming here and wanting to give me the best life possible um, and having it be so hard. Um to make that a reality. During Sandra's junior year of college, President Obama signed the executive order that would lead to the implementation of DACA. I I called my parents and I was very excited. Um, because I was like, Hey, like this actually, like he signed it. This is real. Like I can apply. And they were like, absolutely. Like, let's get started on the paperwork. Like, what do you need? Um, and we went through like immigration lawyers and, um, we wanted to make sure everything was done right. So I applied for DACA and I got my work visa. Um, I think about six months after I want to say. Um, it could have been sooner than that, but I feel like I waited a, a, a good while for my work visa to come in. And I remember checking the mailbox every day um, because I couldn't believe that this was happening. Like, I couldn't believe that I was able to, to do this and get this, this visa. Um, and I remember the day 
that my work permit came in. I remember it so very clearly. I opened my mailbox. I saw my work permit. I immediately got in my car and I went to the social security office. And I said, hey, I need a social security. Here's my work permit. Here's my passport. Here you go. And I, it was like Christmas for me. I was over the moon. I was like, I can't believe that this is happening. Like, I'm really doing this. And I remember the day that my social security number came in, I got in my car and I went to the DPS and I said, hey, I need a license. What do I need to do to get that? And they were like, well, you need to like take this test online and then you need to come in for your driver's test. And I was like, awesome, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> and I was just, I was so excited because all of these like very mundane things and people like probably are like, oh yeah, I remember when I got my driver's license, I was like 15 or whatever. I was all of a sudden, all of these very normal, very boring things that the rest of us get to do had been unlocked to Sandra. And she was reveling in them. I remember paying taxes for the first time was the most amazing thing that I've ever done. <laughs> I remember I remember logging onto TurboTax and it was like social security number. And I was like, I got it. And then, you know, it was like asking me all these questions. And I was like, this is awesome. I can't believe I get to do this. I'm not as excited about it now that I've paid taxes for a couple of years. <laughs> but back then, it was the most incredible thing that I was able to do. Um, and I, all of my friends think that's so funny because they're like, taxes, I hate taxes. I hate paying them. And I'm like, I love it. <laughs> it makes me feel legitimate, you know? Like, it makes me feel like I'm a legitimate working, contributing member of society. Sandra immediately set out to use her work permit. She worked a few part-time jobs through college and since graduating has found a place for herself in the Austin tech scene. DACA allowed Sandra to use the degree that she'd fought to obtain in the country that she grew up in. And then, of course, you and I wouldn't be here now if the president hadn't ended the program that gave Sandra these freedoms. It was on Sunday that Politico broke the news that that Trump was going to end DACA and he was going to do it on Tuesday. And thankfully, my thought process was, okay, so what do we do? Because I was not about to go through that emotional turmoil again of maybe he will, maybe he won't, maybe he will, maybe he won't. And I was like, just make a decision, make it now so I know what I have to do afterwards. And I was super determined on Sunday and I was like, I'm going to do everything that it takes to be able to, you know, fight this. And, you know, I'm going to call all these congressmen. And I was so determined. And then Tuesday finally came around. And I remember watching the news. And when it was finally announced that DACA would be rescinded, my determination somehow just flew out the window. But I remember feeling like everything was over. And I'm not sure why, because I had had this sense of we're going to win, we're going to fight, we're going to do whatever it takes if he takes us away. And then as soon as it was taken away, I just immediately just like crumbled. What helped though was that I was like feeling sorry for myself and I was crying and I was like feeling all of these emotions and like I don't know what to do, like helplessness. 
and I just got flooded with calls and text messages. And it was all of my other friends, all of my other coworkers, and every single text message said, first of all, I'm sorry that you're going through this. Second of all, are you okay? And third of all, what can I do to help you? What do I do to help? And I think that was kind of the, the like standard thought process of all of my friends, which I was super thankful for because I hadn't seen that kind of support previously when I was in college, right? I hadn't seen the kind of support of people knowing what DACA was and people speaking out for it and speaking out for people like me, for dreamers. Do you, or can you even let yourself like have hope for a Dream Act 2017? I don't know if I have hope for a Dream Act 2017. Um, I have hope that people are going to stand with me for it. Um, and I know that doesn't seem like a ton of, like, like that doesn't seem like a happy ending. Um, but it's more than what we saw in 2012. Sandra's work permit expires in May of 2019, but there are many DACA recipients whose permits have expired since September 5th, and there will be many more that expire in the coming months. But something will have to happen in Congress soon if those in power want to restore hope for dreamers. This interview was recorded a few days after Trump's announcement, and if all goes well, you're hearing this episode near the end of January 2018. A few weeks ago, Congress left for the holidays without passing a DREAM Act. Hopefully we get to celebrate some good news in the new year. Hey, this is slightly closer to the present, Matt, from January 24th, 2018. You probably know that the U.S. government shut down because President Trump went back and forth on signing a bipartisan bill that would have funded the government and included funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program and a DACA replacement. Since then, CHIP was funded, the government was funded for a few more weeks, and the Democrats got a promise from Mitch McConnell to put an immigration bill on the floor. In any case, the lives of the people you're hearing from in these episodes are still being used as bargaining chips, and their futures are still not secure. Status is produced by me, Matt Horton. And y'all, I have some amazing news about the music. Don't worry, our favorite Ben Mitchell still contributed to this episode. But music for this episode was also provided by none other than the amazing Breakmaster Cylinder. I've been wanting to shout this to the world for literally weeks. The Status theme song is Bread and Circuses Are Back by Ben Mitchell. Special thanks for this episode go out to Katie Cakes of Cake Bites Podcast and Katie Rowley. Follow Status on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Status Podcast. And please share Status with your friends and family. Your recommendations are the best way to get the show out to more people. And check out other Podglomerate shows. You can see The Feast, Future Break, Writers Who Don't Write, and others at thepodglomerate.com slash podcasts. I'll talk to you next time.